Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 106 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, I am super excited to bring you today's episode. Kara Powell is back, and Kara is one of the brightest people I know, and also uh, one of the most scholarly leaders out there. She has a PhD. She works at the Fuller Youth Institute, and she, Jake Mulder, and Brad Griffin are just releasing a brand new book called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Now, I had an inside track on this um, project because Kara asked me a couple of years ago to be on her advisory team along with a couple of other senior pastors who were on her advisory team. I kind of watched this research take place and take shape. It's been a fascinating journey. And the good news, I mean, this is what's so awesome. Sometimes you just look at all the big churches and think, well, of course they're, you know, crushing it with young people. But my little church, it's not going to make a difference. Man, their research, and Kara will talk all about it, is so encouraging because it doesn't really matter what denomination you are. It doesn't matter what size you are. It doesn't matter even your ethnic composition. I mean, there are churches of every single demographic you can imagine who are doing a great job with millennials. Churches with big budgets, churches with small budgets, churches in small towns and urban centers. And what Kara and her team have done is they've isolated the principles that really apply across the board. And she's going to talk about it. This was a lot of fun too, because it was the first interview that Kara gave on the subject of this new research. So, hey, you're in the front row seat. I'm so glad you guys are here. Thank you to all of you who subscribe to this. Thank you for everybody who's left a rating and review. Thank you to all of you who share this when you find it helpful with your team, sharing it with them and with other leaders. Man, you guys rock, I gotta tell you. And I think this is gonna be an episode you're gonna wanna share. Hey, if you want some of the show notes, you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 106. Everything Kara and I talk about in the interview is gonna be in the show notes, including all the links to her resources, and uh, the launch season for this new book, et cetera, et cetera. So make sure you check that out, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 106. It's also a place where I blog with different ideas from time to time as well. So usually a couple of posts, fresh posts every week and would love for you to check that out. It's not just the podcast, it's a lot more than that. And uh, finally, uh, you know, those of you who live in the California area, if you can get yourself over, to Irvine, we are going to be there. Kara's going to be there. I'm going to be there. Reggie Joyner, John Acuff, Doug Fields, many other leaders are going to be in California this week. We're there Tuesday and Wednesday for a two-day stop on the Orange Tour. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm hosting a lunch for senior leaders, so make sure you get over to, well, really, it's kind of Los Angeles, and uh, hang out with us. That would be great. And then on Friday, if you're in Colorado, I'm in Denver on the Orange Tour there. So doing the same thing over there. It's a one day, it's Friday, and uh, hitting up a bunch of other cities this week as well. Also, one last note, for those of you who subscribe, you have asked and asked and asked, and it's finally here. We are on Google Play. So Android users, rejoice. You can subscribe. You can find us easily. You don't have to rig around it anymore. We are on Google Play. So however you choose to listen to your podcast, whether that's iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, it's all available there for free. Make sure you subscribe today. Well, in the meantime, here is my conversation with Kara Powell. 
Well, Kara, congratulations. Uh, I was going to say welcome back to the podcast, but it makes it sound like I'm congratulating you on making it back to the podcast, <laughs> but that's not actually the source of the congratulations. You got a brand new book releasing today, don't you? Yeah, we're so excited. I co-authored it with Brad Griffin and Jake Mulder uh, here at the Fuller Youth Institute, and it's called Growing Young. Growing young. So you, Ponce de Leon, like you've discovered the fountain of youth or what, well, what is this all about? Well, I wish because that would be quite lucrative. It's, <laughs> it's not quite the fountain of youth, but in the midst of a lot of churches struggling and a lot of churches aging, our team wanted to figure out what are the bright spots? What are the amazing churches, the amazing faith communities that are growing and reaching young people? So they're not shrinking or aging like so many churches and denominations, but they are growing and growing young. So we got to study those bright spots. We got to visit with them. We did interviews with their leaders. It's been an incredible four years of research. Yeah. And I've, I feel really privileged because you sent me the manuscript, included me in sort of the whole process, the whole writing process. And I've had a chance to see this take shape. I, I confessed to you earlier, I have title envy, uh, growing your church young, like growing young. That's just so good. That's so good. And it's something everybody wants to see, right, Kara? And what I love about your research, we talked about this before, Everybody has opinions, you know, I'm a blogger or whatever, but you actually have research. I mean, you have a doctorate, you, you actually did some quantifiable research that, that is statistically sound, and you discovered some really, really fascinating things. So the churches, let's start there. The churches in this study, this is not your opinion, sitting in your office at Fuller, you went out and surveyed churches to try to figure out what churches were actually doing a great job of renewing their faith with the next generation and their leadership and reaching the next generation. So what churches did you survey and what did you find? Well, the way that we found these churches, what we call exemplar churches, or churches doing amazing work with 15 to 29-year-olds. So that was the age group mm -hmm. we studied. Teenagers, college students, young adults, emerging adults. The way that we found those amazing churches was we went to denominational as well as non-denominational leaders in the U.S., and we asked them, where are the churches that are either growing numerically when it comes to their work with young people, or just have something special going on with young people, even if it's not reflected yet in numerical growth. And so they sent us nominations, and then we contacted those churches. We had them fill out some surveys. And from those initial surveys, we identified 250 churches all around the country um, that are growing young. And one of the things that our team was most thrilled about was, to be honest, when we started the research, I had this concern that we'd end up with a lot of large white mega churches, yeah. so to speak. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with those churches. Right. I've been a part of those kinds of churches in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and we did have those definitely represented in our sample, but we were so thrilled by the amazing diversity in our sample. Um, half of the 250 churches that we studied were not predominantly white. Um, wow. They were all sorts of sizes. They ranged from 200 to over 10,000. They weren't all new, young, hip church plants. Sure, we had some of those. We have churches in our sample who are just a handful of years old, but we also have congregations in our sample that are over a hundred years old. Um, mm. Denominations, non-denominational churches, urban, rural, suburban. Um, but one of the really exciting messages out of our research is that God is working in churches of all flavors and sizes, and that's something to celebrate. And that also means that our research relates to every church, because yep. any church can find themselves in the midst of our sample.
Hmm. So, Kara, that's what really fascinated me about the research. And if I remember, it's been a few months since I, I saw the book, but I mean... That's okay. You, I've got a pop quiz for you for later, you gotta, Okay, I'm in trouble now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was it was mainline. It was non-mainline. It was evangelical. Yeah. There were charismatic churches. There were non-charismatic churches. Uh, it was every region of the country, every size of church, small, medium, large, mega, a few giga churches, if if you use that term, yeah. and and different diversity, you know, as far as people's ethnic background goes too. And so, really, you got a cosmopolitan look at the church. So any single leader listening now can probably find themselves in the study. And you saw they were all doing different things, but they were effective in reaching the next generation of 15 to 29 year olds. Yeah. And if if I can just add one interesting highlight for us is that uh, the Roman Catholic Church was also Mm. involved in our study. They submitted nominations and we studied their churches too, their parishes. And I'll tell you, the Roman Catholic Church is at an interesting place because Pope Francis is this incredible magnet for young people. Mm -hmm. They see him on social media, they hear excerpts and they're drawn to him. And the local parish at times hasn't quite caught up with the spirit and ethos of, of Pope Francis. So Roman Catholic leaders, priests and and national leaders, they are very open to any help they can get to better engage 15 to 29-year-olds. So we love visiting their churches. In fact, one parish that I got to visit, uh, it was close to closing its doors maybe seven, eight years ago. Now it's a parish of 1,500 people, a thousand of whom are from ages 15 to 29. So this parish experienced this remarvelous turnaround. And, you know, there are some stories like that where it was an amazing corner was turn. And then other congregations, it's been slow and steady growth and outreach over the last years or decades. I think what's so encouraging to me is you can find yourself in this study or you'll recognize yourself in this study, which is really neat. And and you'll recognize your context. By the way, on, on that note of Roman Catholicism, one of my future guests on this podcast, maybe six or seven weeks from now, is Father James Mallon, who is actually leading reformation within the Catholic Church today. Just a fascinating interview. So hang on for that podcast, listeners. That's coming up soon, too. So tell me about that. Now, you identified a number of factors. You look for the common denominators in these effective churches. So even though they're incredibly diverse, huge variants and backgrounds, they were all doing certain transferable things well. Can you walk us through those things? Yeah, yeah. So as I mentioned, we surveyed the 250 churches. Then we did a, over a thousand interviews at 40 of those 250. And then we did site visits at 12 of the congregation. Wow. And as a result of that, I mean, we had 10,000 pages of data collected over 10,000 hours. Hmm. And then our team at Fuller of over 40 students and 22 faculty, we went through that data. We spent hours, hours, hours in conference rooms trying to figure out, you know, what's most essential in these congregations. And, you know, we started with a list of nine, then we went to eight. We ended up at six, what we call core commitments, that these amazing churches in the midst of their diversity have in common. And so we call those the six essentials or the six core commitments for any church that wants to grow young. Wow. So walk us through a few of those. And obviously we can just sort of touch down on them, but I thought, I thought they were fascinating. Um, let's, let's start with empathy. You say that churches, churches that do a great job connecting with 15 to 29 year olds do an excellent job of empathizing with them. What do you mean by that? Yeah. 
Well, what we mean by empathizing is understanding the main questions that young people are asking and then journeying with them as they try to answer those questions. Hmm. And in the midst of our research, we've identified three questions that every young person is asking. And they are questions of identity, who am I, belonging, where do I fit, and purpose, what difference do I make? Now, I mean, Carrie, you and I are a little older than the 15 to 29 age group, and you and I are still answering those yeah, questions. Yeah, they don't really go away, do they? <laughs> they don't go away. I mean, they're kind of always, they're always simmering yeah. in our lives, but for that 15 to 29-year-old, they're at a rolling boil. Um, and the churches in our study, they didn't judge young people or view them as other, but really walked with them as they were trying to find answers to those questions. And what I love as a theologian is... Is the gospel has the best answers to those questions. Our identity is ultimately found in God's grace. Our need for belonging is ultimately found amidst the love of Christ-centered community. And our need for purpose is ultimately found in God's mission. Um, now, what's interesting about this generation of young people that's different, say, than, Carrie, than when you and I were in our 20s, is that adolescence is extending. Uh, mm-hmm. According to U.S. Census data, young adults, they're getting married five years later. They're having babies five years later. They're they're finding that long-term employment five years later. So the idea of that 26-year-old living in their parents' basement, that's not a myth. That, yeah, that's that's that. legit. Yeah, and some of your listeners might be experiencing that. And again, um, what what it's easy to do is to somehow judge this generation of young people mm-hmm. as being lazy or being entitled, et cetera. And you know, there might be a degree to which that's true. But overall, what these growing young churches did is they looked past some of that and they empathized with some of the challenges for this generation in this particular season. So let's go a little bit deeper on that because, you know, as, as I get together with marketplace leaders in my community, friends in business, and even sometimes in the church world, I hear a lot of backlash against millennials. I hear they're lazy, they fail to launch, they don't care. I don't share those views, but a lot of people do. And do do you find that that sometimes happens in churches? And when you have that attitude toward millennials, you basically build a wall, not a bridge to them. Yeah, I mean, uh, yes and yes. In answer to your question, yes, that sadly happens in churches. And yes, you know, young people pick up on that. They're not naive. They're not ignorant. If your church or if you as a leader or parent or congregation member, if you're kind of judgmental toward young people, they are astute enough to realize that. And so, you know, the churches that we studied, they were filled with amazing compassion and empathy. So let me tell you about one woman in her 60s named Martha, who um, she, her her church all of a sudden experienced this turnaround and young people were starting to come to her church. And she'd been part of this church for decades. And as thrilled as she was that, um, that young people were showing up, she had a hard time connecting with them. And, you know, she described that there'd be four or five of them standing in the church lobby and and she would try to go up and talk to them and all of a sudden the conversation went silent and right. things were really awkward and she didn't know how to enter into a relationship with them and she I'm so glad she mentioned this to her pastor and her pastor helped her understand these questions of identity, belonging, purpose. And that gave her a new understanding of these young people. And what the church wisely did is they involved young people in the overall fabric of the church. They didn't segregate young people in only age specific ministries, but they had them serve as, you know, as deacons and be involved in the worship team and be involved as third grade Sunday school teachers. And so all of a sudden, Older adults like Martha are interacting more with these 15 to 
nine-year-old. It's being infused with empathy that comes from the teaching of the leadership. And it took some months, but now Martha's really close to some of those young adults and they to her. But it it was a pivotal leader who Mm -hmm. helped Martha understand, uh, yeah, they are a little different. And yeah, they might not know what to do when you try to dive into conversation, but here's what they're going through. So, yeah, and I can see that. It's like an organic integration as opposed to, hey, go stand in this room at this hour and you yeah. know, we'll minister to you. Did most of these churches have young adult ministries? I see more and more churches doing young adult ministries. And I don't specifically remember from the research whether you found that, but um, I'm all, I always say at Connexus Church, our young adult ministry is church. That's it. That's we're You're just integrated. You're on the host team, you know, the greeting team or you're, you're, you're an elder or you're in leadership or you're on staff or you're, you know, on the music team or on production team or, you know, you're serving the poor in the community. That's just what you do. And so our young adult ministry is our church, which also happens to have a lot of older adults as well. Sure. What, did you have any findings in that area? Like what yeah. did you see? Yeah, you know, it's hard for me to describe a typical philosophy there because so many churches varied in how they handled that. But what I will say parallels what you were describing is that those churches that did have age-specific programming, whether it's a Tuesday night Bible study or whatever it might be, they made sure that those young people, ages 15 to 29-year-olds, knew that they were part of the overall church. So they never said, you know, this young adult ministry replaces church for you or is your church, I think that's bad theology. What they said is, you know, you are part of our overall congregation. And just like it's helpful for 28-year-old moms to have age-specific discussions or 60-year-olds going through retirement or 50-year-olds going through empty nest issues, just like for all life stages, it's helpful to have conversations with people in our, our, our life stage. We also need that paired with being part of the overall body of Christ. Yeah, that's a really good point. This dovetails with your earlier research in Sticky Faith, too, which sort of says, you know, along the empathy lines, I love the point that it's not doubt that's toxic to a young person's faith. It's unexpressed doubt. And you can only express that doubt in an empathetic, caring environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that relates to one of our other core commitments. So we've talked about empathy, but if we can talk for a few moments about Jesus's message, Carrie. Let's do it. Okay, because I think that fits in well with what you're talking about with doubt. So uh, we we were taken to school by a 24-year-old that we interviewed. So uh, one of the questions in our interview, and she's part of an amazing church, it was in our study. Um, one of the questions that we asked her was, how would you define Christianity? And she said, well, I don't really know how to define Christianity, but let me tell you about who Jesus is in my life. Mm. And when I heard that um, audio and saw that in the transcript, I thought, man, all of us Fuller faculty members who looked over the survey and designed and approved those questions, she took us to school because <laughs> she, she pointed out something that, that we had missed was that we were using the term Christianity. And for young people these days, Christianity is second and Jesus is first. Mm. Uh, you know, Christianity may or may not be winsome because there's cultural trappings, etc. But Jesus is always magnetic. And Jesus is a message and a person and a context that can handle our biggest questions, including our doubt. So that was fascinating for us as we spent time with this young woman and, and hundreds and thousands like her at these congregations, who um, they cared a whole lot more about Jesus's life and teaching and what they had heard from their leaders about Jesus than they did some of the other trappings that we tend to associate with the, quote, institutional religion, end quote, of Christianity. So as, as a leader myself, 
I've been challenged out of our research to look at every message I'm giving, every Bible study I'm giving, and you know, how is this, how is this centered on Jesus? How is this different than say a Jewish exposition or even a Mormon exposition? You know, how is Jesus so pervasive in what we're discussing? So is that distinct from God? Like just churches, some churches just prefer to talk about God. Other churches are more Christ-centric. And and these are Trinitarian churches. I'm not talking about, you yeah. know, outside of the, the ambit of the Christian faith. But like, if I get, so let me put it this way. I'm a preacher. I get up and I preach about God. I'm a preacher. I get up and preach about Jesus. Is the message going to connect equally with a younger generation? Or they're really looking for Jesus-specific teaching? Uh, more the latter. You know, really? we could have a whole separate podcast um, on the theology of the Trinity and God and right, Jesus. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I won't dive into those nuances. You're right. All the churches were, you know, Orthodox, Trinitarian churches. Mm-hmm. Um, but for young people, what they were, uh, what was magnetic for them, what they were drawn to was Jesus. Any idea why that is? I'm only speculating here, but That's I okay. think, I think, Jesus as an incarnated form of God is perhaps a little bit more relatable, tangible. And if you look at Jesus's teachings, especially in light of first century context, they were radical. They were revolutionary. They were big. And so, you know, for young people, as they think about Jesus interacting with various sinners, as they think about Jesus interacting with various religious rulers, as they think about Jesus interacting with his disciples and, and people who were drawn to him because of his healing power. I think that the radical nature of what Jesus had to say and what he did, that's compelling for a teenager or an emerging adult. In my completely unscientific research, which is what I specialize in, Kara. Right. Um, well, you got to have your degree in something. So unscientific, unscientific research. research. One of the trends I've noticed in churches that are doing a great job with millennials is an emphasis on Jesus as opposed to God. And I've gotten some pushback from leaders, but I wonder, do you think that could be because in the general spirituality, like people, people aren't atheistic, some are, but most are just spiritual. They're just not Christian. God has become a generic term, but Jesus is a very specific term and also a person that draws people to himself. Do you think some of that is tied up in that, this idea of the generic God versus the specific Jesus? Yeah. Uh, Talking about God is safer Mm -hmm. and young people aren't necessarily looking for what's safe. Oh, so, that's good. <laughs> so, you know, they want a leader, they want a, a tribe, they want a, a church body that's willing to be a little less safe in how they talk about and invite others to experience the, the power of Jesus. Well, I know we caught you on a busy day, and so I want to make really good use of this time, but let's talk about keychain leadership. As a leader in the church, I'm just fascinated by this concept of keychain leadership. And that's at work in all of your standout churches. So leadership can mean a thousand things to a thousand people. What defines keychain leadership and what were these churches doing with it? Yeah, well, this is another surprise and in some way a little bit of a disappointment to me as a researcher. When we started our research four years ago, um, part of me, because I love the priesthood of all believers so much, I love the idea of bottom-up, grassroots change, part of me was hoping that leadership wouldn't be that big of a factor in these churches. Okay. Well, <laughs> that yes. hope 
Yeah, I know. That hope was very quickly dashed um, because leadership actually, we list it as the first of the six core commitments because the most common progression that we saw as churches move through these six core commitments was that it started with leadership. Um, Sometimes a pastor, but other times it was three elders or deacons who really had a passion or a group of parents. So it wasn't always staff leadership, although that was probably most common, but it could be any kind of influential senior leadership. Um, but what I did love about what we found about leadership is it, it wasn't a central, centralized control or kind of domineering, authoritative kind of leadership that was magnetic for young people and helped churches growing young. It was what we call keychain leadership. How did we come up with that term? Well, it actually came from one of the people that we interviewed, one of the youth pastors who's at this amazing Nazarene church um, in the Northeast in the U.S. Uh, he was describing his call to ministry. And the day that he got his driver's license, his parents handed him the key to the family car so he could go driving around that day. And this teenager was very involved in his church. And so he went to the church and he showed up at church and the director of the preschool at the church sees him driving and realizes he's got his driver's license now. They have a need for staff. And so she said to him, hey, um, his, his nickname is Stretch. Hey, Stretch, um, would you like to come work at this preschool? It comes with the keys to the church. And Stretch thought, yes, absolutely. I would love the keys to the church and and to work at the preschool. And so, you know, he got the key to the car. He got the key to the church. Well, a few days later, when the youth pastor at the church heard that Stretch was now working at the church's preschool, he said, hey, Stretch, we need somebody to fill the soda machines at church. Would, Would you be open to do it? We'll give you a key to the soda machine and you can drink all the Mountain Dew that you want. (laughs) And and so Stretch said, yes, absolutely. Dream come true. All of a sudden, he's got keys to the church building, keys that he thought only the senior leaders could have. He's got keys to the soda machine, which for him as a teenager was very iconic and symbolic. And, And so what we came to realize is Stretch felt empowered as other leaders gave him literal keys. Now, we're not saying that every young person should, you know, walk around with literal keys to your church. But what we are saying is that every leader has keys of authority, power, influence. Um, and, And as young people are ready for them, the leaders that we stood, the leaders that we studied knew how to hand those keys over to young people. As young people were ready for them, how to give them the training, the opportunities, let them fail a little bit, then coach them in how to succeed. So, you know, the best leaders we found, and this is free news to your podcast listeners, they're not, they didn't have to be hip, sure. There were some hip leaders wearing skinny jeans in our sample. Yeah, um, you know that looked fresh off like the Rolling Rolling Stone cover. We did have those kind of leaders in our in our study. Right, but there were the majority of leaders were not like that. Um, they were leaders who built relationships with the young people and were handing keys to all members of their congregation, including the young people. How do you know that a young person is ready for the keys? Because that's a debate that I hear over and over again. And you know because. I think the leadership of the church is firmly entrenched now, for the most part, in Gen X, Boomer, or even elder generations, depending on what church you're in. And a lot of the time in those circles, it's like, well, I don't know whether a 21-year-old can handle that, or I don't know whether an 18-year-old can handle that. What are, are there, you know, what would you say to leaders who are worried about flipping the keys too early? Yeah, I would give two suggestions. Number one, 
If you're not sure, find a leader who's closer to that young person and ask them or find an adult who's closer to that young person and ask them. So, you know, if if you don't know, probably somebody else does. So Mm -hmm. figure out who that somebody is and ask them. The second thing I would say is my hunch is that all of us have our own tendency when it comes to being keychain leaders. Some of us are too quick to give away keys and others of us are too slow to give away keys. And so know that tendency about yourself and then... And make sure that you're trying to counter that with the way that that you either give keys, keys away more quickly or maybe a little bit more slowly if you tend to do the opposite. That's good. And you know what I always think about, too? People gave me outrageous amounts of responsibility probably before I was ready for it. Did that yeah. happen to you, too? Yeah, so. I would say exactly the same thing. I had a youth pastor at age 15, 16, who was giving me opportunities that I never imagined that I would have. And um, and when I failed, not if, but when I failed, when it didn't quite go like we all hoped it would, he was right there debriefing with me, encouraging me, and giving me suggestions for the future. So, um, you know, I, I think if I had to choose leaders to err to one extreme, it would be to lean to the extreme of giving away keys more frequently. Yeah. I've seen churches too, where really it's being run by millennials, by 15 to 29 year olds for the most part. And the older people just sit there and clean up the mess and debrief and like redirect, but don't take the keys back because sometimes in the chaos, God is present. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's often, uh, let me make this more personally. It's often my desire to control as a leader Hmm. that makes me want to take the keys back. So, you know, related to knowing your own tendency, whether you give things away too quickly or too slowly, what what's the issue behind that issue about your own self and either your desire to get rid of responsibility or maybe probably more commonly for, for leaders, our desire to control and make sure that our church and even we ourselves look good in the eyes of others. So churches use a lot of rhetoric about the way they support young people. And I think every church would say, hey, we're a friendly church. You know, we want young people, etc." You use the phrase prioritize young people everywhere in growing young. What does that mean? And how is that different from some of the other rhetoric we hear about the importance of young people? Yeah, this was also one of our six core commitments, and we identified it as the hinge point. In other words, some of our core commitments could be done by churches that were good churches, but weren't engaging young people. Really, the the fork in the road, so to speak, for churches was how they prioritized young people. We we call it an inordinate prioritization. Um, Often that did mean investing in the in budget when it comes to teenager and young adult college student ministry, but by no means was that universal. You know, the way that I like to describe it, and this is actually what I told the pastoral team at my own church as I was sharing the research with them, is the churches in our study, one of their first questions whenever an Easter service was coming up or short-term mission trip, new small groups ministry, whatever it was, one of their first questions was, how does this relate to what God is doing in our young people? Mm. So, you know, that Easter service is coming up. How are the young people going to be involved? That short-term mission trip, what's going on with teenagers and young adults? And how does that funnel into our overall church direction? Uh, One of the churches that I had a chance to visit um, is a 200-person Latino church 
here in Southern California, and it's actually a Baptist church, but I'll tell you, it's the most Pentecostal Baptist church. <laughs> I've been. So it, it was rocking and rolling, that's for sure. Um, but this church, the adults, especially the older adults, really only spoke Spanish. And they realized that in order to engage young people, they were going to need to incorporate English into the worship services so that they were part English, part Spanish. And so, you know, these older adults were either willing to learn a new language or were willing to have parts of the worship service be spoken in a language they wouldn't even understand. Wow. Willing to do that because of their commitment to young people. So, you know, I I think about some of the other battles churches face over music style and him or no him or, you know, whatever it might be. And then I think about this 200-person Latino church, and I think they were willing to sit and not understand or learn a new language because of their vision for young people. Uh, so, that's so, pretty committed. Yeah, I, I, that's an example of prioritizing young people and families. That's right. that's an important part of our research too, especially those families of teenagers. And you know, Carrie, I know you and I are sold on the orange theology mm-hmm. and philosophy that the best spiritual development in young people happens when churches and and parents come together and partner. Um, and so, you know, we saw in these churches, especially when it came to teenagers, that since parents are, according to research, really the most important influence in a young person. One of the best ways to influence young people is to equip their parents. Yeah, that's good. How did how did churches do that? How did they equip the parents? What did you see going on there? Well, a lot of times it boiled down to training. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're a parent. I'm a parent. It's overwhelming to be a parent. You know, my my job at Fuller, it's decently complicated. It's a piece of chocolate cake compared <laughs> to being a parent, you know? Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. Yeah, and I'm constantly scratching my head, wondering what to do. And and I'm so glad that our church has said, you know, we want to come alongside you. And and even though the youth staff, they're um, younger, and some of them are parents, none of them have parented teenagers. I love what they've done to tangibly connect with us as parents. They've created time rhythms. So every day, the youth staff prays for us as parents. Uh, Mm. They spend five minutes a day, just wherever they are, praying for us as parents. Every week, we get an email with information about events as well as hints about what's happening in the teaching so that we can reinforce or sometimes start the conversation at home. Every month, we get a training resource emailed to us, a, a podcast, an audio, an article. And I love what our church does every year to try to prioritize and partner with parents. They've stolen an idea from the school district. And um, our church does parent-teacher conferences, where mm. I really parent-pastor conferences, where I as a parent can sit with my kids, high school and middle school pastor in this case, and I can talk with them about what's going on in my kids and what I'm seeing and what I'm concerned about and what I'm thrilled about. And, and that's how our church, even with younger youth staff, but they've had to be intentional and set up these kind of rhythms to make sure parents don't fall through the crack or that it's just the same kind of rhetoric about partnering with parents. They figured out a way to make that a reality. That sounds so good. And we do very similar things at our church. What I'll do is I'll link to Parent Q in the show notes because I don't know whether that's what your church uses. That's what our church uses. I also contribute to that through Orange as you do, but it's a done for you resource that you can just send out. So it's not like you have to hire a whole bunch of staff or anything like that. This is stuff that you can use that other people have done that are very helpful for that. Okay. You've, you've listed a few surprising characteristics that churches don't need to, in order to be effective with young people. Uh, Any others that we haven't touched on so far? So you don't have to look like you're on the cover of Rolling Stone. That's a big relief to me. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I never looked like I was on the cover of Rolling Stone, <laughs> but I certainly don't now. So, um, yeah, and, and this brings such freedom to churches and to leaders, what we found that isn't a requirement to be a church that's growing young. You don't need a big budget. You know, we saw some churches that had very little in terms of financial resources, but they were creatively using what they had um, and stewarding the other resources in addition to money, the, the time and the talents of their congregation. So you don't need a big budget. You don't need a modern building. Mm -hmm. Did we encounter some churches with great facilities? You bet we did, but they were not the majority. You know, a lot of churches that are doing amazing work with young people are meeting in kind of outdated facilities or maybe using a school or a community center and doing some creative facility sharing. So you don't need a modern building. And maybe probably this is the most freeing for, for me and, and perhaps some of your listeners. You don't have to be this cool leader. Um, you know, so one of the pastors that was hearing about our research said, well, doesn't it just boil down to, you know, you drive a motorcycle and, and you have a goatee. And, you know, the, the evidence in our data is no, that's not the case. Any age can be effective to young people as you're doing some of these core commitments like empathy, like talking about Jesus, like being a keychain leader. So just like our research relates to all churches, um, any leader can get better at engaging young people. Yeah, it's so true. You know, my wife and I are small group right now. Almost everybody in our small group is in that demographic you talk about. They're young people and they actually want to hang out with us. I just yeah. can't believe it. And it's not because we're super cool. It might be because I have a big green egg. But <laughs> other than that, you know, they just want to hang out with us. And, and I, I love that. And it's a chance to build into them. So my hunch is, Carrie, that you're finding in your small group what we found in churches across the country, and that's this. When we build relationships with young people, our lives are transformed, oh, too. Yeah. So, you know, I just need to say that about the churches in our study. Um, yes, they made some sacrifices to engage with young people, but across the board, they would say that what they received was so much more than what they gave to young people. And, and the word that churches kept using when we asked them, what difference has it made in your church to engage young people? They kept saying vitality, vitality. Wow. Our church now has vitality. So, you know, I'm biased here, but but I very biased. But yeah. I, I I went into our research thinking this, and I'm even more convinced after our research. It's hard to think of a way to better infuse life, a new passion for Jesus, and overall vitality into your church than by engaging young people. That's um, so true. You know, the churches in our, our sample, they had more volunteers. They often ended up with more more money, more financial support, maybe not because those 15 to 29-year-olds are incredible tithers. Right. But, you know, there's, there's 50 and 60-year-olds who want to be in churches and are energized when they see 22-year-olds worshiping and serving. So, you know, that... that that energized young person is also often a draw for others who are maybe a little bit older. Um, they had more vision. They had better questions. They were more culturally sensitive. You know, they kept pointing to all the mores that young people had added into their body. Man, you answered my last question so well, just there, because my last question was going to be, okay, so what do you say to the older adult who's like, oh, great, it's all about the young people. What's in it for me? I just think you gave the best 90 second articulation of what's in it for me that maybe I've ever heard. Yeah. Well, well, thank you. That's I, what's in it for them. That's yeah. what's in it for people over 50. It's like, it's not about you folks. 
Yeah. You know, I, I, if I can tell one story, one you last sure that we encountered during our research, it's about this, this pastor who's also a parent and someone in his congregation had given him a worship CD and he put it in his car and he listened to it periodically, but there was one track on the CD that he really didn't like. It was track 11. He mm. just didn't like the, the, the lyrics, didn't like the melody. So every time track 11 came on, he would fast forward over it. Well, apparently his wife would often drive around in the same car with their five-year-old in the back seat, and she was okay with track 11. And the way that this pastor knew that is because one day when he had just his five-year-old in the back seat, he didn't quite get to advancing the CD past track 11 in time, and all of a sudden the five-year-old in the back seat is belting out track 11. This five-year-old loves track 11. And now, Carrie, track 11 is that pastor, that parent's favorite song on the CD. So, so you know, good. I think, I know I'm kind of getting chills and getting a little choked up thinking about this. So I think you know that becomes the question for us who are at older than 29. It's, are we willing to say that we'll be okay with track 11 because that 22 year old, that 16 year old, that 29 year old, they're going to love it. Oh, I love that, man. Kara, this has been so refreshing. And the book is called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. Great title. Where can people get a copy and where can they learn more? Well, it's sold anywhere books are sold, but really the best place to go is churchesgrowingyoung.com because not only is the book available there, we have a host of other resources. And I definitely want to let your listeners know we've designed a brand new assessment based on some great research by faculty done at Fuller so that any leader, any young person, any parent can go online and take a, a pretty short and easy quiz and figure out of the six core commitments, where are they strongest, where are they weakest, and have a custom customized plan for their church and for the young people they care about. So not only do we want you to get the book, but we really want you to take that assessment so you can have a plan that works for you. And what's the website again? Because now all of a sudden everyone wants to go. (laughs) Sure. The website is churchesgrowingyoung.com. Okay. We'll link to all that in the show notes, just kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 106. Kara, thank you so much. Thank you for this research. It is a gift to the church. It's a gift to the future and a gift to the kingdom. And I want to thank you so much for that. Well, my pleasure. And thank you for having us. Our team here at the Fuller Youth Institute is such a fan of you and all you do. And we're eager to meet some of your podcast listeners. Awesome. Thanks, Kara. Man, are you not encouraged? Like, isn't that just incredible news? And I love the fact that it's really about your attitude and approach and kind of your, your whole philosophy and the way that you, you interact with the next generation more than it is, you know, your budget or your program or your model or your denomination or your location or any of that. So the book is called Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. You're going to want to pick it up. Uh, you can find all the notes to anything we talked about today. If you happen to be driving or cycling or running or whatever, at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 106. Hey, we're back next week. I am super excited to bring you a fresh episode. And again, if you subscribe, no problem, you can get there. But how about this for our guest? Um, 
he was 35 years old when he got a phone call and said, guess what? <laughs> You're becoming the pastor of one of the top 100 churches in the country. Huge mega church in Ohio. His name's Ben Snyder. You're going to love him. It's no wonder his church loves him. And he's going to talk all about his first year of transition, how as a young leader, a millennial, he really stepped into that role, the challenges in front of him. Ben Snyder is my guest next week. We got Tony Morgan, Chuck Swindoll on the way this month. It's a packed month uh, for the next 30 days. We're super excited for that. So make sure you subscribe. You will get everything for free. And in the meantime, we're back next Tuesday. Thanks so much for listening today. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.